0: SECTION 2 OF THE GOLDEN Bough, VOLUME 1, THE MAGIC ART, AND THE EVOLUTION OF KINGS, VOLUME 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. CHAPTER 2 PRIESTLY KINGS The two questions to be answered. The questions which we have set ourselves to answer are mainly two. First, why had diana's priest at nimai the king of the wood to slay his predecessor second why before doing so had he to pluck the branch of a certain tree which the public opinion of the ancients identified with virgil's golden bough the two questions are to some extent distinct and it will be convenient to consider them separately we begin with the first which with the preliminary inquiries will occupy this in several following volumes in the last part of the book i shall suggest an answer to the second question The first point on which we fasten is the priest's title. Why was he called the king of the wood? Why was his office spoken of as a kingdom? Priestly Kings in Ancient Italy and Greece The union of a royal title with priestly duties was common in Ancient Italy and Greece. At Rome and in other cities of Latium, there was a priest called the Sacrificial King or King of the Sacred Rites and his wife bore the title of Queen of the Sacred Rites in republican athens the second annual magistrate of the state was called the king and his wife the queen the functions of both were religious for example the king superintended the celebration of the eleusinian mysteries the lenaean festival of Dionysus, and the torch races which were held at several of the great athenian festivals moreover he presided at the curious trials of animals and inanimate objects which had caused the death of a human being to him in short were assigned in the words of Plato, the most solemn and most truly ancestral rites of the ancestral sacrifices. Many other Greek democracies had titular kings whose duties, so far as they are known, seem to have been priestly and to have centred round the common hearth of the state. For example, in Cos the king sacrificed to Hestia, the goddess of the hearth, the equivalent of the Italian Vesta, and he received the hide of one leg of the victim as his prerequisite. In mighty line, the kings of whom there were several invited to banquets at the common hearth those guests whom the state delighted to honour in Chios, if any herdsman or shepherd drove his cows his sheep or his swine to pasture in a sacred grove the first person who witnessed the transgression was bound to denounce the transgressor to the kings under pain of incurring the wrath of the god and what was perhaps even worse of having to pay a fine to the offended deity In the same island, the king was charged with the duty of pronouncing the public curses. A spiritual weapon of which much use was made by the ancients. Every eighth year, the king at Delphi took part in a quaint ceremony. He sat in public distributing barley meal and pulse to all who chose to apply for the bounty, whether citizens or strangers. Then an image of a girl was brought to him, and he slapped it with his shoe. After that, the president of the Theaids, a college of women devoted to the orgiastic worship of Bacchus, carried away the image to a ravine and there buried it with a rope around its neck. The ceremony was said to be an expiation for the death of a girl who, in a time of famine, had been publicly buffeted by the king and, smarting out of the insult, had hanged herself. In some cities, such as Megara, Agosthena, and Pegae, the kingship was an annual office and the three years were dated by the king's names. The people of Praen appointed a young man king for the purpose of sacrificing a bull to Poseidon at the Pannonian festival. Some Greek states had several of these titular kings who held office simultaneously. Traditional origin of these priestly kings At Rome the tradition was that the sacrificial king had been appointed after the abolition of the monarchy in order to offer the sacrifices which before had been offered by the kings a similar view as to the origin of the priestly kings appears to have prevailed in greece in itself the opinion is not improbable and it is borne out by the example of sparta almost the only purely greek state which retained the kingly form of government in historical times for in sparta all state sacrifices were offered by the kings as descendants of the god one of the two spartan kings held the priesthood of zeus lacedaemon the other the priesthood of heavenly zeus sometimes the descendants of the old kings were allowed to retain this shadowy royalty after the real power had departed from them thus said ephesus the descendants of the Ionian kings who traced their pedigree to kodos of athens kept the title of king and certain privileges such as the right to occupy a seat of honour at their games to wear a purple robe and carry a staff instead of a sceptre and to preside at the rites of Eleusinian demeter so at cyrene when the monarchy was abolished the deposed king Bettus was assigned certain domains and allowed to retain some priestly functions thus the classical evidence points to the conclusion that the prehistoric ages before the rise of the republican form of government the various tribes of cities were ruled by kings who discharged priestly duties and probably enjoyed a sacred character as reputed descendants of deities priestly kings in various parts of the world this combination of priestly functions with royal authority is familiar to everyone. Asia Minor, for example, was the seat of various great religious capitals peopled by thousands of sacred slaves and ruled by pontiffs who wielded at once temporal and spiritual authority like the popes of medieval Rome. Such priest-ridden cities were Zella and Pessinus, Teutonic kings again in the old heathen days seem to have stood in the position and to exercise the powers of high priests. The Emperors of China offer public sacrifices, the details of which are regulated by the ritual books the king of madagascar was high priest of the realm at the great festival of the new year when a bullock was sacrificed for the good of the kingdom the king stood over the sacrifice to offer prayer and thanksgiving while his attendants slaughtered the animal in the monarchical states which still maintain their independence among the gallows of eastern africa the king sacrifices on the mountain tops and regulates the immolation of human victims and the dim light of tradition reveals a similar union of temporal and spiritual power of royal and priestly duties in the kings of that delightful region of Central America, whose ancient capital now buried under the rank growth of the tropical forest, is marked by the stately and mysterious ruins of Palenque, Among the Matabeles, the king is high priest. Every year he offers sacrifices at the Great and the Little Dance, and also at the Festival of the New Fruits, which ends the dances. On these occasions he prays to the spirits of his forefathers, and likewise to his own spirit for it is from these higher powers that he expects every blessing. Divinity of Kings This last example is instructive because it shows that the king is something more than a priest. He prays not only to the spirits of his fathers, but to his own spirit. He is clearly raised above the standard of mere humanity. There is something divine about him. The Spartan kings supposed to be attended by Castor and Pollux, who were thought to manifest themselves in certain electric lights. Similarly, we may suppose that the Spartan kings were thought not only to be descended from the great god Zeus, but also to partake of his holy spirit. This is indeed indicated by a curious Spartan belief, which has been recorded by Herodotus. The old historian tells us that formerly both of the spartan kings went forth with the army to battle and that in later times the rule was made that when one king marched out to fight the other should stay at home and accordingly says herodotus one of the kings remaining at home one of the tindarids is left there too. for hitherto both of them were invoked and followed the kings the tindarids are of course the heavenly twins castor and pollux the sons of zeus and it should be remembered that the two Spartan kings themselves were believed to be descended from twins, and hence may have been credited with the wondrous powers which superstition often associates with twins. The belief described by Herodotus plainly implies that one of the heavenly twins was supposed to be in constant attendance on each of their human kinsmen, the two Spartan kings, staying with them where they stayed and going with them wherever they went. Hence, they were probably thought to aid the kings with their advice in time of need now castor and pollux are commonly represented as spearmen and they were constantly associated or identified not only with stars but also with those lurid lights which in an atmosphere charged with electricity are sometimes seen to play around the masts of ships under a murky sky moreover similar lights were observed by the ancients to glitter in the darkness on the points of spears pliny tells us that he had seen such lambent flames on the spears of roman sentinels as they paced their rounds by night in front of the camp. It is said that Cossacks riding across the steppes on stormy nights perceived flickering of the same sort of their lance-heads. Since, therefore, the Divine Brothers Castor and Pollux were believed to attend the Spartan kings, it seems not impossible that they may have been thought to accompany the march of a Spartan army in a visible form, appearing to the awe-stricken soldiers in the twilight or the darkness either as stars in the sky or as the sheen of spears on earth. Perhaps the stories of the appearance of the heavenly twins in battle charging on their milk-white steeds at the head of the earthly cavalry may have originated in similar lights seen to glitter in the gloaming on a point here and there in the long hedge of levelled or ported spears for any two riders on white horses whose spear-heads happened to be touched by the mystic light might easily be taken for castor and pollux in person if there is any truth in this conjecture we should conclude that the divine brothers were never seen in broad day but only at dusk or in the darkness of night now the most famous appearance was at the battle of lake regulus as to which we are expressly told that it was late in the evening of a summer day before the fighting was over such statements should not be lightly dismissed as late inventions of a rhetorical historian the memories of great battles linger on among the peasantry of the neighbourhood the divinity of kings in early society But when we have said that the ancient kings were commonly priests too, we are far from having exhausted the religious aspect of their office. In those days, the divinity that hedges a king was no empty form of speech, but the expression of a sober belief. Kings were revered, in many cases not merely as priests, that is, as intercessors between man and God but as gods themselves able to bestow upon their subjects and worshippers those blessings which are commonly supposed to be beyond the reach of mortals and are sought, if at all, only by prayer and sacrifice offered to superhuman and invisible beings. Thus kings are often expected to give rain and sunshine in due season, to make the crops grow and so on. Strange as this expectation appears to us, it is quite of a piece with early modes of thought. A savage hardly conceives the distinction commonly drawn by more advanced peoples between the natural and the supernatural, to him, the world is, to a great extent, worked by supernatural agents, that is, by personal beings acting on impulses and motives like his own, liable, like him, to be moved by appeals to their pity, their hopes, and their fears. In a world so conceived, he sees no limit to his power of influencing the course of nature to his own advantage, prayers, promises... Or threats may secure him fine weather and an abundant crop from the gods. And if a god should happen, as he sometimes believes, to become incarnate in his own person, then he need appeal to no higher being. He, the savage, possesses in himself all the powers necessary to further his own well being and that of his fellow men. Sympathetic magic. This is one way in which the idea of a man god is reached. But there is another. Along with the view of the world as pervaded by spiritual forces, savage man has a different and probably still older conception in which we may detect a germ of the modern notion of natural law or the view of nature as a series of events occurring in an invariable order without the intervention of personal agency. The germ of which I speak is involved in that sympathetic magic, as it may be called, which plays a large part in most systems of superstition in early society the king is frequently a magician as well as a priest indeed he appears to have often attained to power by virtue of his supposed proficiency in in the black and white art hence in order to understand the evolution of the kingship and the sacred character with which the office has commonly been invested in the eyes of savages or barbarous peoples it is essential to have some acquaintance with the principles of magic and to form some conception of the extraordinary hold which that ancient system of superstition has had on the human mind in all ages and all countries. Accordingly, I propose to consider this subject in some detail. End of section 2